Good morning, everybody. Hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. Christmas trees are out. Shopping has begun. The race is on. See how much you can get for as little as you can get it. Our favorite sport in December. Hey, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. And we uh, <clears throat> conclude our study of this great book of the Bible today. <clears throat> now, you'll remember in our studies of John, we discovered that, I mean James, that James, the half-brother of Jesus, who listened very carefully to the Sermon on the Mount and uh, cites it in several places, including in our text today, is teaching us that you can't be a Christian unless you're going to be growing, that a Christian grows. And uh, the Christian grows through patient endurance and through prayer through watching our pride, guarding our tongue, controlling our avarice. So he, he brings up some crucial ethical issues, including our hearts. And he says, the one who is following Christ brings him whole, his whole self to this task and offers himself as a living sacrifice to be changed and transformed by the Lord. That's what it means to be a Christian. And he really presses this point, you'll remember in chapter 2, when he says, uh, in effect, we're, we're aware of the doctrine of justification, that we're justified through faith alone, that we're given a standing with God based on the performance of another, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's imputed to us through faith. That's taught in the Apostle Paul in Galatians and Romans. But James says, true as it is, that faith through which we're justified alone is not a faith that is alone, it's accompanied with good works. And he says, you display your faith through your works. So in that sense, you're justified or you're, you're demonstrated as a Christian through what you do. So it's a very practical book. When we come to the end as we do today, we're going to see he picks up the original themes that are in the first part of James that through patient endurance and steadfastness and prayer, uh, we are going to grow and follow Christ. And we're going to look at each of these elements because, of course, as you would expect, he gives them different twists and things that we need to learn about how to grow, how to be uh, a Christian. Let's look then at verse 7 in chapter 5. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. 
Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Okay, the first thing that we're being reminded that we must do as Christian people is be patient. I want patience now. Give it to me. Yes, you can be impatient in your prayers, but you can't be impatient with one another or even with yourself or with the unfolding of history. We must be patient. And why is this? First of all, we're looking for the advent. He says, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So our patience as Christian people is particularly rooted in our confidence that the Lord is coming back and in the fact that we're looking for His coming. Now, I know it's been 2,000 years since He left us. It seems like an awfully long time, doesn't it? But it, Peter addresses this. He says, a thousand years is but a day with the Lord. There are scoffers who say He's never coming. What are you ill idiots doing looking up into the skies waiting for your Jesus to come back? Of course they're scoffing, Peter says. But He is coming back. And all of the uh, existence that we know, uh, as we know it, is going to melt before the fire of God. And He's going to bring us a new heavens and a new earth. This is the doctrine of the return of Christ. In some uh, cultures that are oppressive to Christianity, for example, historically in China, the Chinese authorities have allowed the churches to exist as long as they register with the government and as long as they don't preach the second coming of Christ. So the government-registered churches in China are disallowed from preaching this doctrine. Why? It changes everything, that's why. Because this will make a new man out of you. If you really are able to delay your gratification, if you are really able to live life in the face of God's imminent judgment, you're a different man and you'll change worlds. And even those who don't know the Lord know that's true. So he says, be patient. Be patient with one another, of course. Be patient with yourself. Uh, how often we just get so angry We're on, the, on the highways. You see people are just so impatient. And you know how it is. Those competitive juices come up. Somebody comes up and passes you and zooms right in front of you. Okay, you hit the accelerator. You see, I don't need a bumper. You know? What's that all about? It's about a person who's not thinking about the second coming of Christ, I'll tell you that. It's a person who's thinking about, I'm going to wreak vengeance, I'm going to tit for tat, I'm going to show this person, I'm going to get, get myself back enthroned on, in this little argument here. Be patient. Be patient. Why, why would you fight over the little stuff? Why do you get so upset? Focus on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And furthermore, James then makes the argument here in, in verse 7, that, once again, we're talking about your growth. We're talking about how, how men grow as believers. And he said, 
Look, consider the farmer. Some of you have farming backgrounds. Some of you are engaged in farming now. And you know that when you sow the seed and you see that first little sprout and you wonder how it's doing, you don't pick it up and look and see if it has roots and then put it down and you just wait. And of course, if you're a good farmer, you know how to pray. So you wait, you pray. And James says, you know, the early rain comes, which is about this time of year, a little bit earlier in Israel. So when sowing time takes place and the early rain comes after that seasonally, that's the way it usually works. Most of the rain in Israel comes, you know, in just a, three or four months. You have the early rain in the fall. And then you have the latter rain around February, right before they, they're going to reap the harvest. And it fills out the harvest. And James is saying, you know how this works. You have to just wait. A farmer has to do a lot of waiting and depending upon the weather. And he's saying, look, take a lesson from the farmer. He knows how to make things grow. So let's learn from him. We're going to grow the same way. So you also, he says, be patient. Now look at this, this next sentence in verse 8. He says, establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. This, is the, the, this word establish is sterizo. It's the same word that's used in Luke 9.51 where we're told that Jesus set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus was determined that he was not going to be deterred from going to Jerusalem to lay down his life for us on the cross. So he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Here's what James is saying. Set your hearts on the Lord Jesus Christ. It begins in here. It's a heart discipline. And there's nothing more difficult to discipline than your own heart. The tongue comes in number two. Number one is your heart. So you have to discipline your heart. How are you feeling? What kind of what kind of thoughts are arising from your soul when you're being mistreated or when something's not going your way? Discipline your heart. That's where it all begins. And so patience begins right in here. Focus on the heart. This is the beautiful thing about biblical religion. It gets right to the heart of things. We're not just interested in having your outer conduct conform to the ethical standards of the Bible. That's important. But in the Christian faith, it always grows out of a heart of affection for Christ. It grows out of your relationship with Him. Everything in life gets down to your relationship with Jesus Christ. doesn't matter what issue you want to talk about. Eventually, we're going to get to this in the conversation. How does this affect your relationship with Jesus Christ? And how does your relationship with Jesus Christ inform this situation? Whether it's business or family or community or church, no matter what it is in your life, ultimately, the brother who's growing establishes his heart looking to the Lord Jesus Christ and looking for his, look what he says here, his imminent return. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Our job is not to draft a calendar to figure out what day and what year Jesus is coming back. Our task in the light of the imminent return of Jesus Christ is to live a life for Him, to be growing on the inside and be growing on the outside. Look for His advent. There's, that's the way in which you're going to deal with your impatience. Be aware of His presence. When you get angry, instead of just counting to ten, count to ten and change your thoughts. And while you're counting to ten, before you say that first nasty word, just think about the Lord's presence and think about His imminent return. We all live in the light of that reality as Christian men if you've given your life to Jesus Christ. Secondly, 
Look at verse 9, and this is on your outline B. Control your tongue. This is all part of patience. It is, because if we're establishing our hearts, it's going to discipline our tongues. And I'm telling you, that's the only way to discipline your tongue. You can't, I mean, how do, how do you put a clamp on your tongue? And it gets us in so much trouble. And look what he says here. The trouble we get in sometimes is grumbling. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Whoops. <coughs> now he's talking to Christian people. He's talking to people who have received Jesus Christ as Savior, <coughs> who have been promised eternal life. And he says, you have a judge. Yes, we do have a judge. Look, uh, a few of you in this room would have had a father who actually was a judge. And if you go in his courtroom, he's the judge. He's also your father, but he's the judge. So God has become your father through Jesus Christ, but he's the judge. And he's standing at the door. That is, he's writing your presence, and it means he's getting ready to come in the room. And when the judge comes in, he judges everybody. And judgment begins, as Peter says, with the house of God. So God judges his own people first. So we live in reverence, in reverent fear, if you will. We fear the Lord, even though he's our father, we fear him. And those of us who had good fathers, we did fear our fathers. But do not grumble against one another, he says. If you're living in the light of God's presence as judge, you know that his final judgment is imminent. You're patient, and in your patience, you're not grumbling. Grumbling comes from impatience, ungodly impatience, as well as lack of love for the brothers. And we've seen in the Old Testament how devastating grumbling is. Miriam and, and Aaron grumbled against their brother Moses and oh, tried to overthrow him. And, of course, God disciplined them for it. But they grumble, grumble, grumble. When something's not going our way, we find something to grumble about and we find someone to grumble about. And the Scriptures teach us this is very evil. It is devastating to the body of Christ. So our patience has a corporate effect. When we're patient, we're not grumbling against one another. And of course, the grumbling that really comes is when things aren't going well in your business. Things aren't going well in your practice. Things aren't going well in your marriage. Then you're tempted to grumble. That is to blame somebody else, to just be miserable. If you're going to be miserable, hey, let's make everybody else miserable with us. That's the whole nature of grumbling. It's just, it's, it it uh, uh, scatters about like a virus. It does go viral. And in churches, grumbling can be really devastating. What do you do instead of grumble? Well, first of all, you look to the Lord. You trust Him. You're, you're waiting for Him. Secondly, when you have a complaint against a brother, you go straight to the brother. James' brother, Jesus, taught us that. In Matthew chapter 18, when, you have, when someone's sinned against you or someone's done something against you, you go to your brother. Why? Because you want to restore your brother. Because you're being other-centered. You're not thinking about your own self primarily. You're thinking about him and the fact that he needs to be restored to the Lord as well as to you. So you love him enough to go to him. And I find, I find people who are in Christian leadership who have been around for decades, literally, 
in Christian leadership and they still grumble and talk behind people's backs instead of going to them directly. There's nothing more devastating than that. And uh, in whatever organization you're in, I just trust that in your Sunday school classes or in your ministry or among your accountability group, you're disciplining yourselves with respect to grumbling. Nothing can display our impatience and do more division in the body of Christ than grumbling. It's from hell. So control your tongue. Thirdly, C, verses 10 and 11, he says, remain steadfast. This is an important word with James. It's an important word with Jesus. Remain steadfast. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets. So look to the prophets. And what about them? We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. The prophets remain steadfast unto death. For example, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Look at Job, who's steadfast. He loses his children. He loses his wealth. He loses his health. And of course, you know, all he's left with is a nagging wife. And she says to him, why don't you just curse God and die? You know, you've impoverished yourself. You've impoverished me. Why don't you just get it over? Just curse God. Let lightning come strike you. And that's the end of it. And Job says, you're speaking like a foolish woman. Did you notice how he put that? He didn't say, you're an idiot. He didn't say, you're a fool. He said, you're speaking like a foolish person. Talk about patience. And so Job is patient, and he does not curse the Lord. In fact, that's the test in all of Job, as you'll remember when we studied that book some years ago. The test is, and it's, a, it's, in the, it's happening in the heavenlies. God challenges Satan. You can do anything to this man you want to, and I'll show you he won't curse me. And Job never did. He was steadfast to the end. And, of course, the whole point was, through all of this, Job was getting a great lesson in the being and the work of the deity himself. And Job said, uh, I have heard of you with my ears, but now I see you with my eyes. And he sees the glory of God, and he understands God is sovereign. And he works all things out, including your miseries, according to his purposes, one purpose of which is to bring you to himself and to enrich your life ultimately, even though you and I as little children don't understand it. And he proved that to Job. And then at the end of the book, what did you get? The mercy and compassion of the Lord. When he doubled Job's wealth and gave him his children and more, and there was Job again in what pictures for us, what it's going to be like for us when Jesus comes back. And you are fully enriched and you own the universe and you'll say, my ears have heard of him, but now I see him. It's more amazing than I ever thought. And Job got that through patience and steadfastness. And you demonstrate your Christian faith when the tough times come. Uh, last night I was speaking with some of our younger adults, and they asked me about how you, you persevere through some of the tough times in life. How do you, you know, how do you finish well when you're going through so many things? And I said, you know, one thing that we need to remember is, of course, when tragedy hits us, uh, sometimes it can just feel like it's absolutely overwhelming. Some of you who know the, the situation with the Gieselman family, with three girls, two of whom uh, have Batten's disease, for which currently there's no cure. And one of them just died a, a week ago, and we had the funeral. And the other, the other one with Batten's disease is showing all the symptoms. These little girls, what a tragedy. 
But if you know the Gieselmans, you know that's what's, what's happened in Dana and Fraser's life is that the Lord has taken them deeper in their relationship with Him. There's no question about it. If you know them and you've been around them, you can see the sweetness of the Lord. You can see that they trust Him because they've been forced to trust Him at a deeper level than they ever could have imagined before. Now, none of us with children could ever imagine that we could do that. And you can't. It's, it's, my mind won't go there. I can't imagine myself in that situation. But I just trust the Lord that if I'm in that kind of situation, He'll give me the grace I need when I get there. And the Gieselmans have, re, have, have experienced that. And brothers, it's the same with you. When you get into these deep trials and disappointments, you have to realize that what's really happening is, in the eternal, from the eternal perspective, this is one of the moments in your life when you're going to grow like crazy if you'll stay steadfast, if you'll keep trusting Him. Even as Job had to say at one point, you'll remember, he said, though the Lord slay me, yet will I trust Him. So you stay steadfast even if He kills you. And what you're going to see at the end is this beautiful display of His compassion and mercy. You're going to see it. Right now we're in the middle of the story. We can't possibly understand it. It seems so confusing and damnably uh, depressing. But if you'll hang on and get to the end, you're going to see it. So remain steadfast. Like Job, he says. Job's your example of that. And you can see how the Lord blesses it. The Lord reveals Himself to Job, and then the Lord shows His mercy and compassion to Job in the end. So this is how we are sustained through tough times. We realize this is the moment. This is my moment when I can worship the Lord in a way that I couldn't when things were going so well for me. Sometimes you'll face difficult times because they're dry. They're arid times. And you say, how can I stay steadfast when I'm bored? Well, let me just give you, uh, tell you what I do with my, my old self when my soul gets arid, dry, and I'm bored. I look to myself and I say, self, you are a little idiot. How could you possibly be bored with a God like this who has created this and who has sent His Son to redeem you from the hell that you deserve. You need to rise up, soul. How could you possibly be bored with this? If you're bored with God, guess whose problem that is? And so what you do is you realize, I need to repent. So if your soul is flat, if you feel like you're in a dry season, of course, there, there are psychological elements to this. Some of us really are in need of therapy. Some, sometimes we're in need of certain medications to help us. But aside from that, in the natural uh, order of things, when you feel yourself spiritually dry, remember once again, this is a test. What are you going to do with this? Are you going to let your boredom cause you to drift away from the fellowship of God, stop reading the Bible, and just try out a few lifestyle alternatives? Or are you going to look to the Lord and say, Lord, please take my heart in your hands and arrest me and help me to see reality? Right now I'm, I'm not seeing reality. That's the reason I'm bored. So whether it's a great trial or a period of dryness, this is the moment in which you show your steadfastness and ultimately will experience the depth of God's compassion and mercy. Remain steadfast, he's saying. So being patient, looking for his advent, controlling your tongue, remaining steadfast, steadfast, and D, keep your word. You're tempted during difficult times to go back on your word. And once again, this all ties together. This is all part of persevering patiently 
with the Lord. Look what he says. Choose above all my brothers, uh, but above all my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Now, here's what James is clearly talking about, and Jesus likewise in Matthew chapter 5. They're not saying, when you're in the courtroom, don't raise your hand and promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He's not disallowing that. When, when civil government requires us to take on a special oath to assert and affirm that we're telling the truth, that's a good thing. I think Christians ought to support that. There are these moments when our unregenerate neighbors, for example, need to know this is an important moment of truth-telling, and you take an oath to tell the truth. And we should participate with them. And I think you'll see the Old Testament affirms that. Uh, those of you who are Presbyterians, the Westminster Confession even deals with it and explains and teaches that <coughs> we are free to take proper oaths. And certainly, if you're uh, a parent, it, it, uh, often some of you in, in churches that baptize infants, you take baptismal vows. You promise things that are under a special, solemn vow that you're taking. We believe in marital vows. We believe in ordination vows. So we take vows and oaths. They're appropriate. What's being discussed here is when you're doing a business deal or you're especially talking to a brother, you don't need to add anything to your yes or to your no. Let your word be your word. In your, as, a, as a believer, if you're following Jesus Christ, in your day-to-day -day language, you don't need to say, I swear on this Bible, da-da-da-da-da. Or by the Lord, I promise it. You don't need to say all that. The only reason you'd need to say it is because you're thinking the other person has had some bad experience with you and you're not telling the truth. Why don't you just tell the truth? And if you're 20 years old, people don't know your reputation yet. If you're 35, they will. You've been living by the truth for 15 years in the public arena. You don't have to say a word. We know. We've watched you. We've experienced you. So if you're younger, just begin building your reputation. When you say something, you're going to do it. When you say you're not going to do it, you don't. And by the time you're 35, we'll all know. You won't have to say anything else. James is saying that's the way you live as a believer. That's exactly what Jesus did. He always told the truth. Once again, this is a trying moment for us. When do we not tell the truth? Well, it's when we're afraid of something. We're threatened or we don't want to embarrass ourselves. Let me give you a little experiment. I'm not suggesting not to be tactful. I do believe in tact. If my wife tells me, does this dress make me look fat? I ain't stupid. I'm not going to tell a lie. I'm not going to tell a lie, but I'm going to be tactful. Honey, you look good in anything. And, and she does. So now if your wife doesn't look good, you can't say that. So what do you say? You say, honey, that dress doesn't make you look fat. Because the fact is, she's fat anyway. <laughs> you come up with something. You know, I really like that color on you. I like that color on you. Where'd you get that dress? You change the subject. You, you tell the truth, but you don't tell the whole truth. No sirree, Bob. You're not an idiot. So... We don't tell the whole truth. <coughs> we tell the truths that are edifying. So I'm not saying that you're not tactful. But I just got a little experiment for you. <coughs> Why don't you live life in light 
of what it's going to cost you to tell the truth no matter what. So when your welfare is at stake, not somebody else's where you're tactful, your welfare, where you can love somebody by telling them the truth, a truth that hurts you, a truth that has consequences, why don't you try a little experiment and let's see how life works out. I think you'll be amazed. First of all, the person will go, really, you did do that? Yep, I did. And I'm really sorry. Will you forgive me? You're going to be amazed how things work out. I've told you the story before. I, I like John Paul II. <coughs> you remember when he was first pope, some of you older guys remember this, at, at Gandalfo, the, uh, the uh, retreat place, you know, really nice repeat, uh, retreat palace that the pope has. The pope John Paul II put in a swimming pool. And the press says, ah, we got him. So they started to quiz him. Hey, uh, your fa father, why did you put a, a pope in, uh, why did you put a uh, swimming pool in Gandolfo? And he said, I like to swim. There you go. That's it. It's amazing how <laughs> ended all discussion. And, you know, in, in our political arena, we're just getting just total madness. You know, uh, Ms. Clinton she, she also knows how to tell untruths in public, but she's, she's fairly sophisticated about it. You know, you got to respect a woman who can do that. Trump is not sophisticated. This guy, he just tells a bold-faced lie, and then, he, and then he does the opposite, and he expects you to just sit there and go, yay, you know. And you're being trained either through subtle untruth-telling uh, or non-subtle <laughs> untruth-telling, you're being trained to operate a certain way. And I'm telling you this, it's having a huge effect upon culture. And you can see it already has because culture accepts this. I just can't believe what we're accepting from public officials. And we think it's funny. I mean, it's unbelievable. And then it, the next step for you is you do the same thing. But you're going to handle your business arrangements like this. You're going to handle your, your communications with your customers this way. You're, you're going to uh, talk about your competitors in ways that are not fair, you're going to do it too. That's the next step, unless you're following Christ, unless you're aware that the judge is standing at the door and that he's got a hold of your tongue and that you're going to be different. You're going to fight this battle. So there's a, there's a new wave or a, a bigger wave of untruth that's just uh, washing over us, and I suggest you remain steadfast in the midst of it. Now, secondly... <clears throat> James is going from talking about how we control ourselves in the midst of a broken world to how we deal with other people. And he's teaching us not only to be patient, but secondly, to be useful in verses 13 through 20. Let's take a look at this. First of all, pray for others. Now, we're taught to pray, and we pray for ourselves. But here specifically, James is teaching us how to pray for other people. And certainly prayer includes all manner of things. We first of all praise the Lord and adore Him. When Jesus taught us how to pray, He said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. So we hallow His name. We praise Him. We adore Him. We also confess our sins for, uh, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors we were taught to pray. So we know that we praise Him, we, we confess our sins and so on. But here in particular, 
James is talking about our prayers of intercession. That we're to take on the relationships that we have around us, including the nation and the world and the city. We take that on in prayer. And we find that when we become followers of Christ, we take on not only this enormous task of disciplining ourselves, but we take on the burdens of the world around us. We become praying men. Now, I know this is not easy. I've told you all before, prayer is not my long suit. I struggle with prayer. I discipline myself to pray because it's, to me, it's a challenge. And those of you who are activistic, uh, you probably have the same challenge in your life. So what do you do? Okay, if you're a kindergartner, then you treat yourself like a kindergartner. So with me, knowing that I'm probably not going to be praying for two or three hours at a time, I chop my prayer list into seven pieces. I've got one for each day. So every Monday I pray for the same thing, Tuesday the same thing, Wednesday the same thing, and I cycle it because I can't handle the whole prayer list every day because I'm in kindergarten. So if you want to grow in prayer, the first thing to do is be realistic about where you are in your prayer life. And don't take a next step that's virtually impossible for someone at our level to achieve this. So instead of going to here, go to here. Just get it up to the next level and seek to develop a richer prayer life where you're really praying for your wife and your children and your grandchildren. You have a regular cycle of some sort in which you're praying about them specifically. Remember Jesus told us, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So we want his kingdom to be manifest among all these people that we're praying for. So think of ways in which you want to pray for these little ones, for the kingdom of God to be demonstrated in their lives. If you teach a Sunday school class, some of you here teach children, those kids' names need to be on a regular prayer list with you. How can we be in ministry with these little ones and in private with the Lord we're not talking about them? It's more important for us to talk to God about them than even to talk to them about God when you get right down to it. The prayers are extremely important in the church. So in every important engagement that you have, the workplace, all the people you're working with in your workplace, get them on the prayer list. And someone was asking me recently about evangelism, for example. I'm saying the most important thing about evangelism is to pray specifically for the people who are now in your life. Pray. Pray that the Lord opens the door to have conversations. Pray that the Lord will open their heart to receive Him as Savior. Pray that they will begin to grow and lead others to Christ. Pray, pray, pray. And James says here, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? He's saying in every circumstance, whether it's a circumstance of suffering or a circumstance of joy, let him pray. And the reason for this is that we're demonstrating our absolute dependence upon the Lord in prayer. And so often... Prayer becomes the last resort. We often say, you know, I've tried everything. I guess I just need to pray. Well, no, you should have prayed as your first resort. It's the most powerful thing. And most of the time, the biggest issues you've got, the only one who can solve this issue is the Lord Himself. Why don't you just ask Him? And He says to us, you don't have because you don't ask. Ask Him. You've got a situation at work, two people who don't get along well together. Well, certainly you need to minister to them and encourage them. Talk to the Lord about it and ask Him to work a miracle and make these people really good friends. And you'll be amazed. When you start talking to Him about things in your workplace, you're going to see your workplace change. 
And our, our default position is we go to church and pray. We pray at the table with, with, with our family and meals. And then the rest of the time, we go out there and act like a bunch of atheists. That everything that we're doing is through our strategies, human means, uh, our resources, our skills, getting the right people on the bus. And I'm not against any of that, obviously. Those are important things to learn how to do. But the most important thing to learn how to do is to talk to the Savior of the world and ask Him to handle this situation for us, regardless of the circumstances. So <clears throat> if we're suffering, we pray, because we acknowledge we, we can't handle this alone. We, we humble ourselves before Him. If we're cheerful, we praise Him because we acknowledge we couldn't have brought this about. He's the one who gives every good and perfect gift, and we're giving Him the glory for it. So in both cases, in sadness and in joy, we're humbling ourselves to acknowledge that He's the Lord of history. So he says, everyone do this. Those who are suffering, those who are cheerful, regardless of your circumstances, pray. But then look at uh, verse 14. He's speaking here specifically to the elders. Is any among you sick? Let the elders go over and anoint. Now this has become a, a text of great interest to people and sometimes controversy. And uh, here we're not quite sure whether the oil is... Um, actually medicinally helpful, or if the oil in this case is representing the work of the Holy Spirit, and just like we baptize with water, we anoint with oil, and that it's in that sense representative of God's work. We're not sure why the oil exactly, but normally in the days of Jesus, uh, if you're out in the hot, dry weather, nothing feels better than to have some oil poured on your cracking skin. So we're not quite sure why the oil is used, but we're told the elders are to be called to anoint with oil and to pray over the sick, and he will be saved, or the same word for healed. He'll be healed or saved. We're not quite sure what the answer is here. What we're told, though, clearly, is that God is working in that, and God is going to be doing something of a saving nature in that. And I, you, asked, you asked me, have you ever anointed someone with oil and they were healed? Yes, Absolutely. And I'm not a Pentecostal. I mean, I'm just a regular old Presbyterian. And I've seen people who have been anointed with oil by elders and prayed over, and they got well. And I'm saying in some, some cases, there's no explanation but for a miracle. I have, have a friend uh, in the previous church I served, and he had throat cancer. And the cancer doctor who was in our church said, Sandy, this was bad. Uh, he's probably not going to be here very long. And we all gathered around. In fact, many in the church gathered around. I think it was a full sanctuary. We all gathered around. We prayed for that young man. And within weeks, he was healed. <laughs> we just go, okay, Lord. Uh, or, you know, and sometimes we'll say, what did the doctor do to turn that case around? After we prayed for him, someone said, that was really unusual. How'd, how'd that happen? The Lord healed him, you idiot. That's what, how it happened. You just prayed for him. So Presbyterians... Don't do this very often. Then when we do it, we're not quite sure it worked. You know? <laughs> I don't know how it works. I don't know, what the, I don't know all the ins and outs of it. All I know is that's what he said. That's what he said. So when some people call us to anoint with oil and pray, we do. Now, notice he mentions elders here. Now, I know every church represented here doesn't have elders, but just can I put in a good word for it? If your church ever wants to discuss having elders, I suggest you engage the discussion. 
The reason is, here's just one more instance. There are many instances in the Bible where you get elder-governed, elder-led, elder-ministered churches. And churches have different forms of government. Sometimes we just have one guy up there. You know, he's the minister. He's the elder, you know, in the church. But here he says elders, plural. And everywhere you see it in the New Testament, it's always plural. So we don't just have, we don't have a pope. We don't have one guy up front who's got all the authority. Uh, we have a college of elders. Uh, and they are the ones who govern, and they're the ones who minister. And notice what they do when they minister. They're praying right here. Why? Back in Acts chapter 6, you remember the elders, or in this case the apostles of the church, were being threatened because the church was about to divide up. The Hellenistic women were upset with the Hebraic-speaking women that, they were, that everybody was giving them favors, and the Hellenistic widows were being left out. And so the apostles' ministry was being tied up in trying to settle this dispute among some widows in the church. They realized that it was a ploy from the evil one. So that's when they appointed deacons. The word deacon is not used there, but we believe it's the first instance of deacons, including Stephen. And you'll notice that they were all men from the minority. They all have Greek names. So it was a Hellenistic minority that was represented by Hellenistic deacons, and they made the distribution. Who's going to argue now? It's the minority who's making the decision. I suggest we put that to work in our own churches. When we have disputes between ethnic groups, just empower the minority ethnic group, whoever it is. But why did the elders do this? Because they said we must not allow anything to distract us from the ministry of prayer and the word. There you have it. The ministry of prayer and the word. That's what elders are supposed to be doing and churches are supposed to have elders in my opinion. And I suggest you think about that. And if you're in church that doesn't have elders, why don't you all at least just start talking about it? Just engage the theological discussion. Who can argue against having a theological discussion? And begin to study the word on it. And here you see how they work. They're our servants. They serve us with prayer leadership and ministry of the word leadership. All of us are praying and all of us are studying the word. But God gives us elders to lead us in this ministry so that all of us will be more effective at it. And here you get it. He gives specific instruction to the elders. Notice what else he does. He tells the individuals uh, that therefore confess your sins, verse 16, to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So it's not just the elders, but there is a specific role of leadership in, the, in prayer and the ministry of the word for elders. And one of the big problems with elders in churches is they get distracted. Acts chapter 6, it happens over and over again. They get distracted. Oh, there's a financial dispute in the church. There's a dispute about what color carpet we're going to redecorate with. There's a dispute about this, that, or the other, and the elders dive in. Why? Because they think they know how to do that. They don't think they know how to pray and lead in the ministry of the Word, and so they just go do something they think they know how to do because we all want to be competent. But what they've done is they abandon their post. They're to be men who focus on the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word. That's the task. And the rest of us have to encourage them to do it. But notice here, he then turns to everybody. Everybody, verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, 
We know in the Roman Catholic tradition, we have confessional booths, we have priests. You, in the Catholic tradition, you're to confess your sins to the priest on a regular basis. Well, we Protestants are saying, no, we, we, we believe the Bible teaches us we're all priests. And we go back to 1 Peter chapter 2 and, and make our case there. We've all been made priests. We have one high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're all priests. We're all offering up praise and we're all praying for one another and confessing our sins to one another. So everybody has a confessional booth. Everybody is a priest. Everybody is ministering to everybody. But lo and behold, what we find in the Protestant church is that we have the priesthood of no believers. Not only do we not have clergy who do it, we don't have lay people who do it. And we've forgotten how to confess our sins to one another. So I suggest if you don't like the Roman Catholic way of doing it, why don't you figure out your way of doing it? And let's learn to confess our sins to one another. This is the reason, of course, that we encourage small groups. We love it when you guys are in discussion groups because we know that if you're together long enough, maybe about this time of the year, you begin to feel comfortable enough with each other so that you'll honestly share some of your trespasses and sins. And then you'll receive the encouragement and grace of your brothers. And gradually you'll grow in that ability. So eventually what we'd love to see are these small discussion groups eventually turning into mutually confessing groups of accountable brothers. Because this is what James is saying we've got to do if we're going to be healthy, if we're going to be healed, if we're going to be saved. Then there's got to be confession and forgiveness offered all around. Well, look then, uh, first of all, it's in every circumstance we pray for others. Secondly, notice we pray with confidence. Number two, this is verse 16b through 18. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You say, well, I know prayer has great power. I mean, just look in the Bible. You see Moses. I mean, Moses prays, holds back the Red Sea. Moses prays and birds come flocking in and pile up about three feet high and everybody eats all they want from the quail. Moses prays and manna comes down out of heaven. Water comes out of a rock. Or Elijah prays and fire comes out of heaven. Sure, I know God answers prayer, prayer of these kind of people. Keep reading. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Or as the NIV says, he's a man just like us. Do you see what James is saying? You romanticize Elijah. Elijah had problems. Elijah was subject to spiritual depressions. Even after his great encounter on Mount Carmel with 850 prophets of Asherah and Baal, and he defeated them all. Then what does he go? What does he do? He runs away in fear, sits under the broom tree and just says, oh, just let me die. He's depressed because Jezebel is after him. After he had just won that great victory and slain 850 false prophets. So Elijah had his weaknesses too. And James is saying, don't romanticize the man. He was a man of God. God set him apart just like he set you apart. And you're just like Elijah. Now come on. If you're in Christ, you have access to the same power Elijah had. And what does he say about Elijah? <coughs> he prayed fervently or literally here, the language is just with prayer he prayed. Really, I think the point James is making is this was not real complicated. With prayer he prayed. 
So it says here fervently, because when you use a word twice, <coughs> uh, often it, it means to uh, intensify. So the translators say he prayed fervently. But I'm not so sure that's what James was saying. I just think he said he, he prayed with prayer. He just, with prayer, he prayed. And with prayer, you can pray. And when you look at the story, that's exactly the way it was. You remember the prophets of Baal and Asherah, they got the first go at it. So they got their sacrifice ready. They had all agreed, whichever God answers by fire, that's the real God. So the prophets of Baal, they get it going. They get their sacrifice going, and they start dancing and shouting and going at it for hours. And Elijah is over there saying, well, keep, you know, why don't you make it a little louder? Maybe your God's on vacation. Or he's, uh, literally, he says, maybe he's gone to take a leak. <laughs> and I'm sitting here thinking, Elijah, you're surrounded by 450 prophets. They got swords. I think I'd cool it just a little bit. But he's just mocking Baal. Do you realize this? The prophets mock the false gods. We try to include them and be mutually respectful to all religions. No, look. You should be mutually respectful to every person in the world, no matter whom they worship. So we respect human beings. They're made in the image of God. We do not respect false religions. We give them civil rights, and we don't trash people. But we certainly will trash other religions that contradict the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly what Elijah was doing. So now it's Elijah's turn. What does he do? He... Get, puts the sacrifice on the altar, and then he asks for water. Remember, it's drought season. He takes his precious water and pours it over the sacrifice until it's just absolutely soaked. Everybody's going, I thought that we were praying for fire, and you're pouring water on your sacrifice? Now, some liberal scholars, they say, it was actually kerosene. <laughs> I don't know where they get this stuff. But Elijah poured water on it, and then with prayer, he prayed. He just said, Lord, answer, answer. No dancing, no special liturgies. With prayer, he prayed. It was very simple. <laughs> you know the rest of the story. With prayer, he prayed. So with prayer, you pray. That's what James is saying. Elijah was a man just like us. And when he prayed, it did not rain for three years and six months. And then when he was told to pray again by the Lord, Heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. And after God answered with fire, they all said, Yahweh, He is the Lord. He is God. Yahweh, He is God. And Elijah's name means, E-L means God. The I means my God. And Jah, J-A-H, means Yahweh. So Yahweh is my God. That's what Elijah means. And that was the, the conclusion of the matter, that, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the God of the universe. And then you'll remember, he prayed for rain and it came. Now lastly, James is saying that in your usefulness, you're first of all patient before the Lord, you're dealing with your heart, you're dealing with your tongue, you're dealing with your integrity and keeping your word, all these issues of character. Secondly, you're being useful to other people, first of all, by praying for them, and secondly, by restoring other people. 
<coughs> he says here again at the first, beginning of verse 19, my brothers. And in James, you'll notice he uses the word brothers 15 times. He's making a point. You do not live the Christian faith on your own. That's the reason we come to Amen Bible study. You don't even study the Bible on your own. I don't. I consult scores of scholars, hundreds of scholars. I'm listening to people all the time trying to learn what the Bible means. And then when I have spiritual troubles, I don't just say it's just me and the Lord. No, I share it with my brothers and I receive the encouragement from them and the prayers that they offer on my behalf. This is the Christian life. It's a brotherly life. That's the reason we join churches. It's like we become members of a family and we're accountable to that family. And you can't live the Christian life without participating and belonging to the local church. You just can't do it. So he says, my brothers, if anyone from among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We do wander. We roam around. We're tempted. I've seen some men who have been in church for years do some astonishingly wicked things. It just takes your breath away that after years of going to church and appearing to be such a solid person, they just go off the rails. Have you seen this? You know what I'm talking about? I'm just astonished at it. And I realize, you know what? I could do that. <laughs> I'm perfectly capable of that. And I need you. Even if I tell you in the moment that I don't need you and I don't want you, I need you desperately. And if you really love me, you won't let my initial resistance to you be the final word. You'll keep on coming. We need to restore each other. So we pursue each other. When you become a Christian man, you want to become like Jesus Christ. So first of all, you're concerned with yourself. But what you understand very quickly is now you're also concerned with the sanctification of your entire family. So you take the burdens of the whole church upon your heart when you follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And when sin is having its way with any of the brothers, that's of concern to you. It is a matter of your business. Now, if you're in a large church, there will be people who may be closer to someone than you are. But you, once you find out that something's happening, you are assured, you get yourself assured, that someone is dealing with this matter who's close to that brother. There has to be a pursuit from us. And if you've got people in your accountability group, you are accountable to pursue them. And he says, they'll be saved. And how I've seen this happen over and over again. I wish I had time to talk about it. But brothers pursuing brothers have led brothers back to intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be a godly man who is patient and steadfast, controlling his tongue, controlling his heart, living in the light of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And James says this is the Christian life. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your promise never to leave nor forsake us. And your promise that you will always have a way of escape no matter what our affliction or our trial is. And that you will be the great reward for every one of us. And we long for that day and pray that in this day we may live in light of that day. Making our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.